Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would convince us of the overwhelming love that you have bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we pray that your mercy would be so real to us. We pray that you would cause us to feel how, how guilty we are before you and how full and free and complete is the pardon, the forgiveness, the justification that you have worked for us in Christ. And Lord, we pray that because of this good news that you would address us as your beloved. Lord, we pray that this would cause us to be transformed into that one new man that Paul speaks of. A place where there is neither barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but we are one in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that you would cause your love to make us loving toward one another. And I pray that this church would be, would be marked by people who know your mercy, whose identities, whose personal identities have been so transformed by your love that we think of ourselves first as vessels of mercy for whom you have prepared the wealth, the riches of your glory. Lord, cause the true story of the Bible to be our story. We pray that you'd make all this so in Christ's name. Amen. As I was thinking about how to help us to feel the enormity of God's mercy, uh, I, was, I was blessed to come across an article that summarizes the story in a book that Michael Franz told me about several years ago. He told me about this book. I bought the book. I haven't, bought, I haven't read the book yet, but um, I have the book, and um, I came across this great article about this book. The book is called A Higher Call. This is how the article opens. The pilot glanced outside his cockpit and froze. He blinked hard and looked again, hoping it was just a mirage but his co-pilot stared at the same horrible vision. These guys are flying a, a big B-17 bomber in World War II. It's a true story. And the pilot's immediate reaction is he's going to destroy us because what they're seeing now is a German Messerschmitt fighter hovering just three feet off their wingtip. And, and the exact date of this encounter is recorded. It was five days before Christmas, December 20th, 1943. And, and the fighter has closed in on this crippled B-17 bomber, and, and the fighter is ready to shoot them down, destroy them all. This particular bomber was piloted by a, name, a man named Charles Brown, who at the time was just 21 years old. Imagine this 21-year-old kid piloting this B-17 bomber. They've been shot to pieces by swarming uh, fighters over the skies of Germany. The the tail gunner has already been killed, and, and the altitude and the season has resulted in 
I mean, he's frozen back there in the tail. So they got no, they've got no one to shoot at this, this fighter that's now coming at them. But as the, the pilot makes eye contact with the German fighter, something remarkable happens. The, the fighter pilot, the German, he doesn't pull the trigger. He nods his head, and then he falls into formation. What, and and, and this, is, this is all the more remarkable because this particular German fighter, whose name is, whose name is Franz, Franz Stigler, um, he was an ace. He was a killer. At this point in World War II, he needed only one more kill to receive the Knight's Cross, which was Germany, Germany's highest award for valor. And he felt motivation. He felt a, a desire for revenge because his older brother, August, who was a fellow pilot, had been killed earlier in the war. So he was out to kill. But, but when he saw this, this particular B-17, he realized that the, that the crew was not fighting back. They were just trying to to, to tend to their wounded, and he realized that the bomber was in no position to, to engage in warfare, and he realized that if he were to kill, it would not be war, it would be murder. And then he pressed his hand over the rosary that he kept in his flight jacket. This German soldier was a, a Roman Catholic. And, and um, in spite of the fact that, that a German pilot who spared the enemy would risk death in Nazi Germany, this guy decides that what he's going to do is fly this bomber to safety. So he, fa he falls into formation to protect him from other Germans, and then he flies him, escorts him over the nor North Sea, and then as he gets him to safety, he salutes him and he peels away. Mercy. Mercy. He didn't owe mercy to that guy. He had killed others, and the fact that he had killed others makes this particular instance of mercy all the more meaningful. Um, this particular American pilot, as he dealt with this in later years, he would have nightmares. And in his nightmares, there would not be an act of mercy. He would come awake as the crash was taking place, having been shot down. This, we're talking about, I'm telling you a story about a Nazi pilot who showed mercy. And the fact that he had shot down so many planes makes it all the more remarkable that he spared this one. As we approach Romans 9, verses 19 through 29 today, I would invite you to open there. Romans 9, verses 19 through 29. Here, here's how I would summarize the message of this passage that is before us. God highlights his glory. So that, that image of, a, of highlight or that metaphor of highlight, imagine someone with a highlighter marking a page. And, and the word that God is highlighting on the page is glory. God highlights his glory. He makes it stand out by showing mercy to responsible human beings who deserve justice. And he does this whether those human beings are Jews or Gentiles. Okay, so, so to set the context for what we're going to see here in Romans 9, verses 19 through 29, let me just remind you of, of where Paul is in the letter to the Romans. So he has concluded chapter 8 by asserting that there is nothing that's going to separate God's people from God's love. 
There's nothing in the heavens or on the earth, no, no, no demons, no principalities, no powers, uh, not persecution, not sword, not nakedness, not da- danger, not famine. Nothing can make it so that God's people are separated from God's love for them in Christ. And then that prompts a question in the minds of his, his hearers, his audience. Well, what is it then that has separated the Jewish people from the love of God in Christ? Because the Jewish people are separated. They've rejected Jesus the Messiah. How has this happened? God set his love on the Jews. Now they're separated from that love. So you've got to explain this to us, Paul. You've just said nothing can separate us, but the Jews are separated. And Paul starts out in verses 1 through 5, assuring us, assuring his audience that he feels a real evangelistic burden for the Jews to come to know Jesus. And he says there in verse 2, he says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. And all you have to do is think about the way that the Jews that he's talking about are maybe his brothers, maybe his sisters, maybe his mom and dad, his cousins, his aunts and uncles, all his extended family network, and all the people that he grew up with. He wants these people to embrace their Messiah. And he feels this great sorrow. And he could even, he says in verse 3, he could even wish that he himself were accursed and cut off from Christ if they would be reconciled to Jesus. So he feels this evangelistic burden for them. But then in verse 6 he says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, the promises of God to the Jewish people are not the problem. They haven't rejected Jesus because of some defect in God's word. And then he goes on to explain that it has always been the case that God has chosen some people and not others. So he starts in in verses 7 through 9 explaining how God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. And then if, again, if there's an objection, well, of course not Ishmael. She was born of this, this woman who wasn't even an Israelite, wasn't even Abraham's real wife. Okay, let's go to, um, let's go to the next generation where you have Isaac and Rebekah, same father, same mother, and you got twins, Jacob and Esau. And God chose Jacob, not Esau. And notice verse 11, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad. So God didn't choose on the basis of the way that they responded. And then um, in verse 11, it goes on to say, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works. So people don't do things that get themselves into God's favor. We don't do works that establish that we should be somebody that God chose. And, and, And that prompts a question in verse 14 through 18, And the question there in verse 14 is, is there injustice on God's part? Is this fair? Is this fair for God to choose Jacob, not Esau, before they're born, before they've done anything good or bad, not according to their works? And Paul argues, absolutely this is fair. And and by no means is there injustice on God's part. And, And here's what he's already argued in this letter to this point that establishes God's justice. Number one... Romans 1 through 3, he has shown, as he says in uh, verse 20 of Romans 3, by works of law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Everybody's guilty. Everybody has transgressed God's perfect, righteous, holy standard. And, And God doesn't owe mercy to any of those guilty sinners. And then even more than that, in Romans 5, Um, Verse 18, Paul says, as one trespass, talking about Adam's sin, 
led to condemnation for all men. So Adam sinned, and all of Adam's descendants are guilty. And then all of us, as Adam's descendants, we do our own sin that makes us all guilty. So it's not unfair of God to say, I'm going to show mercy to this one. And he's not obligated to show mercy to anybody else. And, and then um, at the end of that passage that we looked at last week, Romans 9, 14 through 18, Paul draws this conclusion in verse 18. He says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. And that also prompts a question. And the question is in verse 19. And, and that brings us to where we are today. And uh, before we work through this, let me just briefly summarize for you what we're going to see here in Romans 9, verses 19 through uh, 29. The first thing that God is going, or that, that Paul is going to ask is, basically, why does God blame man? Why does God blame people? If he hardens whom he wills, the question comes out of verse 18, if he hardens whomever he wills, and he shows mercy to whomever he wills, why does he blame them? Isn't he the one doing this? So he's going to take that question up. And then in verses 20 and 21, he's basically going to say that people are in no position to question God. We'll, we'll look at each of these points in more deep detail. And then in verses 22 and 23, he's going to teach that God's justice highlights his mercy. And then in verses 24 through 29, what he's going to say there is, the Gentiles, they come in the same way, they come into God's mercy, the same way that the Jews come into God's mercy. That is, by God's merciful gift. The Jews and Gentiles, in other words, all people, everybody comes in the same way, by God's mercy. So that's what we're going to see. And again, I think the Sort of the overriding point of this passage is that God highlights his glory by showing mercy to responsible humans who deserve justice. And he does this whether those humans are Jews or Gentiles. So let's look at verse 19. Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? That question is arising directly out of what we've just looked at in 9-11, where, where God chose uh, Jacob, not Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. And then later in the verse, um, not because of works. And then it's also prompted by 9.16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And, and Paul has been teaching these things in churches for 20 years now. This Turkish Jew who's now writing to these Italian Christians in Rome. And, he's, and he knows what people are going to say. After they say, well, this doesn't sound very fair, Paul. And he deals with that in 9, 14 to 18. And again, his, his point there is, well, the only reason you think it's not fair is because you think God is obligated to show mercy to people. And what you need to understand is God's not obligated to show mercy to anybody. As he says there in verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And after he says that, the next question that naturally arises is, well, this sounds like we're robots. This sounds like if he hardens whom he wills, and if it doesn't depend upon our works, and God makes his choice before people do anything good or bad, well, it doesn't sound like he should blame me because he's the sovereign one, and I'm just doing what he's predestined anyway, right? Why does he still find fault? 
Who can resist his will? That's, what he, that's the question in verse, verse 19. Paul's answer to this, um, again, he's already established God's justice in 9.14. So when, he, when, he, when, when that question is asked in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And the answer comes, by no means. Paul has already established God is just, which means God is never going to do something that would be unjust. It, is, it would be out of character for God to do anything that we could find fault with. Does that make sense to you? So in this, let, let's just say that there's somebody in your life that you know and trust completely. And, and, and you know this person's character. To say that that person would lie to you or would try to steal from you or would try to take advantage of you, that's going to be foreign to you because you know that person loves you. And, and you can take that with God and you can multiply it by infinitudes of absolute perfection. There is nothing in God that would ever make him do anything wrong toward any of his creatures. He's always going to be perfectly just. So there's no injustice on God's part. Paul's already established that. He has further established, as I've just said in verse 15, that God doesn't owe mercy to anyone. So now this question, are we simply robots? And if we're simply robots doing what we've been programmed to do already by God, how can we be condemned? And I think what Paul does here is he rejects the premise. In other words, he doesn't allow the suggestion to stand. Well, where do I see that? Look at what he says there in verse 20. Who are you, O man? I think that's significant because I think what Paul is doing is he's saying, no, you're not a robot. You're, you're not a lifeless computer that's been programmed to respond in a certain way. Not that there were computers in Paul's day. You know what I'm saying. You're not a dog that has been conditioned and trained to certain behaviors. You're not even a toddler whose faculties of discernment of right and wrong and whose abilities to communicate are not yet developed. You are a human being. You bear the image of God. And, and I think Paul is sort of taking it for granted here that if he's talking to human beings, he's talking to people that everybody knows you're responsible for what you do. And, and, and just to, to reinforce this, Paul has already established human responsibility in Romans 1 through 3. In, in particular, in 3, 7, and 8, when he says, he's asking these same kinds of questions, and he says their condemnation is just. Their condemnation is just because they knew what they were doing was wrong. They chose to do it anyway. Their condemnation is just. So Paul has already established human responsibility. And, and in a way, he's, he's giving a nod to it, I think, in verse 20, when he says, who are you, oh man? He's saying you're a human being. You're not, you're not, some, you're not some less than human thing that, that doesn't make choices and that is not responsible for your actions. You are a human being. But then he's also assuming what he's already taught throughout the letter. So he's rejecting the premise. Of course you're responsible. Oh man. Paul has established human guilt by, act, by their actions in Romans 1 through 3, by their descent from Adam in Romans 5, 12 through 21. And, and I think, as I, was, as I was looking into this, I was, um, my, my attention, I, I was I was Googling things, you know. Uh, what establishes guilt? And there's this great statement 
in, in the American Law Institute's Model Penal Code. And, and it, it, it's talking about uh, the mental states that make it so that guilt can be attributed to somebody who has done what is wrong. And, and so the American, Law's, the American Law Institute's Moral Penal Code says this, guilt can be attributed to an individual who acts purposely, knowingly, recklessly, or negligently. If, if you've acted in those ways, our, our, our law code says guilt can be attributed to you. And I suspect that everybody in the room would agree that every sinner who has ever sinned knows that they acted purposely, knowingly, recklessly, and negligently when they engaged in that sin. And if that's the case, then we know we're responsible for what we did. So let me just give you an, an application point here. What Paul is saying here, I think, if we, if we put it in our terms, we're not robots. We're not robots. We are human beings made in God's image, and God is just. So application. If you're hearing the sound of my voice, you are a human being. You are made in the image and likeness of the living God. Responsibility for your actions, for your choices, responsibility for things that you choose, responsibility for the habits of mind that you cultivate, which we all do. We all decide, I'm going to think in a certain way, and I'm going to, I'm going to cultivate a disposition that inclines me to think in a certain way. Responsibility for the habits of mind that you cultivate. This responsibility is a glory and an opportunity that only human beings enjoy. So what I want to say to you is, do you realize how privileged you are to be a human being? To bear the image of God. It is a glorious thing to, to recognize I make real choices. It is a glorious thing to have the opportunity to be, to be given credit for the good things that you do. You know, when my dog does what I ask him to do, I can pat him on the head and say, good boy, but really it's just a result of training. That's all it is. He doesn't have a, he's not a human being. He's not, I mean, you know, we can think. I think we sort of deceive ourselves. He loves us. No, he doesn't. He just likes the treats. And he just likes for us to, no, he's not a human being. He doesn't feel the emotion of love. But a human being can be commended in this ways. A human being is gloriously capable of moral action. It's magnificent. Verses, that's, that's verse 19. Verses 20 and 21, as glorious as we are, as those made in the image and likeness of God, we're not God. God is our creator. Look at verse 20. Paul's response to the question, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What Paul is saying here is, you need to recognize that God has set the parameters of your existence. The fact that we live in a space-time universe, the, spa the fact that we are constrained to human bodies, this flows from God. God made the world this way. 
And, and, and the Bible's creation narrative teaches us that we owe our existence, the fact that, we, the fact that these bodies are even physically here, and life, the fact that these bodies are living, and our futures, we owe all of this to God, which means we have no standing from which to accuse him. It's, it's one of those situations, maybe you've, maybe you've heard of these, these uh, cases that are, people are trying to get into the, into, in, onto the docket to be tried at the Supreme Court, and, and they, the, the, the justices don't grant standing to the plaintiffs. We don't have standing. That's what Paul is saying here. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? You don't have any standing to accuse him. Privates don't talk back to generals. General gives an order, private obeys. Private decides to talk back, he doesn't last very long in the military. It's not going to go well for him. Who are you, O oh man? to talk back to God. And now what Paul begins to do is he begins to illustrate this and help us think about it. Look at what he says there in verse 20. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Well, a piece of clay or something else that's being molded, it doesn't have the capacity to do that, does it? And, and what Paul is suggesting, I think, is human beings don't have the capacity. You, you don't have the faculty to evaluate God. You're not in position to evaluate God. He knows more than you know. He's aware of more than you're aware of. He, he ha his, his processor is a gajillion times more powerful and faster and his memories. It's just, how could you ever even begin to question him? And then he illustrates it again in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Uh, so Paul is illustrating the, the, the point that he's making there at the beginning of verse 20 with these, these images for us. And what he's saying is God is the potter and we are the clay. And, and then that vessel imagery and, and vessels for honorable use versus vessels for dishonorable use, that imagery is going to inform verses 22 and 23. But before, before we go on, let me, let me offer you some applications of these reality. The, the first one I want to offer to you is Isaiah 66, verse 2. And here, maybe you know this verse, maybe you have this verse memorized. If you don't, it would be a great verse to memorize. Isaiah the Lord says uh, through Isaiah, in Isaiah 66, 2, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And I would, I would commend that disposition toward, toward the Creator to you. This is the one to whom I will look. You know, God is saying, this is how you want to get, you want to get in my favor? You want to be on my good side? This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It's really the same thing that, that the psalmist prays over in Psalm 131. When he says in, in verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. 
My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. The psalmist is saying, the attitude that I take toward God is this. God, I'm not trying to micromanage your affairs. I'm not even trying to evaluate your work. I'm not pretending that I have some standing somewhere, some objective position from which I can evaluate whether or not what you've done is wise or fair or, or good. I'm not doing anything like that, Lord. What I'm doing is I'm coming to you the way that a child comes to its mother. And what I want to do is, is calm and quiet my soul and trust you and just believe that you are good and that's enough for me. You are good, and I can trust you, and that's enough for me. These things that Paul is teaching here in Romans 9 about election, about, about how uh, God chose Jacob, it troubles us because we know people that are not believing. And, and, and we, we respond to this with the same thing that Paul describes, this great sorrow and unceasing anguish because we want them to know Jesus. And we don't want to think something callous and awful and, and, frankly, monstrous like God's sending my loved one to hell. God's hardening my, my beloved child or wife or father or mother or brother or whatever the case is. God's hardening them. and We don't want to think that way about God. And we don't, don't think that way about God. Pray. Pray. Pray that the God whose arm is not too short to save would extend his mercy to them. Distribute the mercy to them. Tell them about the mercy. And hope and believe and pray. Share the gospel. And then say, God is God. And he's sovereign. And everything that he, do, he does, I believe I can trust him. And I believe he's going to do only what is good and right. And I'm going to hope and pray that my loved one will repent and believe because that's what they need to do and they're responsible for their action. And if you, know, if you ask me, well, how do you square the circle of divine sovereignty and human responsibility? Again, I'm going to say, I can't square that circle, but the Bible teaches both realities. The Bible teaches that God is absolutely sovereign. The Bible teaches that people are responsible for what they do. And, and we can't let go of either side of that equation. They asked Charles Spurgeon, how would you reconcile these truths of, of sovereignty and responsibility? And he said, I wouldn't because I would never try to reconcile friends. They're friends. So this application point here is, is encouragement to embrace your creaturely identity. You're made in God's image. But you're also made in God's image. We have greatness as human beings, but our greatness as human beings is relativized by the fact that we are not God. So, you know, on these, will what is molded say to its molder? Has the potter, you know, when you, when you think about this, the divine craftsman, God himself, is shaping and forming you. So I would urge you to feel your worth. Feel your worth as the work of the living God. You are the work of one greater than Michelangelo, one greater than any artist that we could name through the history of humanity. 
And that brings us to verse 22, where Paul speaks of these vessels of wrath. Uh, I'm going to read verses 22 and 23, and then we'll come back and think about these statements together. Verse 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. As I was looking at these statements in preparation for this sermon, what came to mind when when Paul says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, what came to mind were the Canaanites. You know, all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, long before Israel, 400 years at least, before Israel came out of Egypt, uh, the Lord prophesied to Abraham, he said to him, uh, he said that his descendants would be servants in Egypt for 400 years. And then he says in verse 16 of Genesis 15, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And what it suggests is that the Lord is letting those Amorites go their way. He's doing what Romans 1 describes. He's handing them over to their desires. He's not doing anything to intervene in their pursuit of the wickedness that they love. And he's allowing them to fill up their iniquity and and to fill it up to completion. And then at just the right moment, when the iniquity of the Amorites is complete according to the measure that God has set, he brings Israel out of Egypt. They spend 40 years in the wilderness. And then they cross the Jordan and they enter the land of promise. What if God, Romans 9, 22, desiring to show his wrath? When when people transgress God's commandments, God wants to show wrath. He wants to uphold justice. When people harm others, God wants to show wrath. He wants to do justice. He wants to restore order in the universe. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, he wants to say to those wicked, You think you're strong enough to grind the face of my people in the dust. I'll show you who's strong. There there are these lines in the Bible. Their defender is strong. Talking about the, the, the weak and the helpless. Their defender is mighty. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, which we would all celebrate, unless it was directed at us, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience? I think that's the way the Lord treated the Canaanites. I think that's what the Lord is doing now in preparation for the the day when Christ will come and make all things right. Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction. Notice that word prepared doesn't say who's doing the preparing. But look at verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So the way that God relates to the vessels of mercy is he has prepared them for glory. He has intervened. He caused the word to come to them. He he caused them to realize their guilt. And then he caused them to experience the good news of, of the Lord Jesus with as a result of which they said, I've got to believe in him. There's no way I can turn away from him. There's nothing better than him. 
He's preparing. God is actively preparing the vessels of mercy beforehand for glory. Whereas with the vessels of wrath, they're being prepared. And, and there's a difference, I think, in the way that God relates to the two groups of people. So at the, at the bottom of the answer to this question, why would God do this? I think the answer is God wants us to feel his mercy. God wants us to feel his love. God wants people to see the beauty and the glory of forgiveness, and he wants them to be in on it. But he doesn't give mercy to everybody. He's done this. He, he wants to uphold justice in order to make the mercy look all the more glorious. Now, for whom does he do this? This brings us to verses 24 through 29. And, and let me just summarize for you what I think the point of this is. This whole section is all about how Jews and Gentiles come in, come into God's mercy the same way. So look at verse 24. Um, having just referred to the, the vessels of mercy, verse 24, even us. So the us there in verse 24, that's the vessels of mercy from verse 23, which are also the vessels for honorable use in verse 21. And then he goes on, even us whom he has called. And that reminds us of Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And then those whom he called, he also justified. And you notice he doesn't say anything about uh, faith in there. And we know justification comes by faith. So the call, I would, I, following a lot of other thinkers, I, I would see the call as coming, or the call as producing the faith. When God calls people this way, they respond with faith. It's like the call, the call creates the faith. Even us, Romans 9, 24, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then he starts quoting the Old Testament. And the first passage he quotes is from Hosea, verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, that's the Jews. God was talking about the Jews in Hosea when he says, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Remember Hosea started having these kids and uh, he had to name the kids, not my people, and uh, no mercy. And, and what, what Paul is saying is what Hosea was saying through the naming of his kids about the Jewish people, because God then reversed those things. Not my people, I will call my people. Not beloved, I will call beloved. So what God is saying is I've re I'm rejecting the Jews because they've broken the covenant, but I'm going to take them back. And the point is the Jews are taken into God's love by mercy. And then look at the beginning of verse 25. As indeed, as, as the Gentiles come in by mercy, just like the Jews came in by mercy. And then verse 26. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. That's Hosea again. Verse 27, he moves to Isaiah. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So what, what Paul is doing with this quotation is he's saying it was only ever God's purpose to save a remnant. God always intended to save only a remnant so that the remnant would feel the weight of mercy. And then he says in verse 28, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. 
Verse 29, And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In other words, if God had not been pleased to save, only, to save this remnant, the whole nation would have been destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. There's, there's massively important application of this for us. Massively important that is profoundly contentious in our culture. So let me just summarize for you what we've seen here. Once again, the us of verse 24, even us whom he has called. The us are the called of Jews and Gentiles. Verse 24, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. These people now become, Ephesians 2.15, one new man. Now, I told you that I thought Paul maybe had in mind the Canaanites and the conquest, which, again, this would, this would indicate that in the same way that God pours out his wrath on the Canaanites, he gives the glorious land of promise to the Israelites. So that would be in order to make known the riches of his glory. The wealth of God's glory means our pleasure in God's good creation. That's, that's what God gives to his people. This means that if you're a Ruth, remember her? Inhabitant of Jericho, prostitute. And she, come, she becomes convinced the God of the people of Israel is the true and living God. And I am going to be faithful to that true and living God even if it means I must be unfaithful to my countrymen. If you're a Ruth, you don't... I'm sorry, I have Ruth and Rahab mixed up. <laughs> I'm going to talk about Rahab. I'm talking about Rahab right now. Let me talk about Ruth in just a second. If you're Rahab, that's the name. I saw some people looking at each other like, what's he talking about? I'm so glad you people know the Bible. Hallelujah. <laughs> if you're a Rahab, you don't identify anymore with the idolaters of Jericho. You are part of the one new man in Christ. We now identify as the people of Jesus. Ruth, another example. Ruth says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. And where you die, there will I be buried. What she's saying is, I'm not identifying as a Moabitess anymore. I'm now identifying with the people of God. That's what Ruth is saying. That's who we are. His mercy has marked us. That's who we are. His mercy has marked us. So there's a lot of ways that people in our culture think about themselves. I know I'm usually done by this time. Bear with me for just a minute. I, I want to read to you um, some very important statements that, that I heard this guy named Neil Shinvey make. And if you want to check this out, you can go to dennyburke.com. And if you just search critical theory, there's a, there's a video that Denny links there. And I would encourage you to go watch it. And, and this guy is asking the question, of, basically, is critical theory and, and the, the approach to social justice that critical theory advocates, is that compatible with Christianity? I would encourage you to go watch it. This guy, Neil Shinvey, he made these very important statements. This is what he said. I'm quoting him now. Our society is not colorblind. And race is still a source of unearned advantage. And then he gave these examples. And, and what, what I want to say here is, this is the way the world is. This should not mark us. 
We are one new man in Christ. We are one new man in Christ, so we, should, we must not think as the world thinks. But here's the way the world thinks. This guy, Neil Shinvey, he, he talked about these studies, these sociological uh, studies, where what they did was they got pairs of men, and they gave them fake resumes. And they matched these guys according to age, height, demeanor, attractiveness. So, and, and, and one of them would be white, and one of them would be black. And, and they have identical fake resumes. And they send them out to apply for entry-level jobs. And what I'm about to read to you is devastating. Whites received callbacks at twice the rate of blacks. And then this is even worse. A white applicant who reported a criminal record was 20% more likely to receive a callback than a black applicant with no criminal record. This should not be so among us. Our hearts must not be like that. Another study, this nonpartisan think tank sent out, they, in this case, they're just sending out resumes, not people. They send out identical resumes. The, they only changed one vari variable on the resumes, the names. Some of these resumes had white-sounding names like Emily and Greg. Others had black-sounding names like Lakeisha and Jamal. That's the only difference between these resumes. Otherwise, they're identical. White resumes had a 50% higher response rate. We are one. That, is not, that must not be the way that we approach things. We are one new man in Christ. And we all come into God's mercy the same way. Whites and blacks, Asians and Indians, Nazis and Americans. If we're in God's mercy, it's because of God's mercy. These two guys that I was telling you about earlier, Charles Brown and Franz Stigler, a Nazi and an American. The American was having these nightmares. And so he felt prompted to try to find this German pilot. And he wanted, to, he wanted an answer to the question, why did this guy save my life? So he scours the military archives. He attends pilots' reunions. He finally placed an ad in a German newsletter, I'm reading from this article again, for former Luftwaffe pilots, retelling the story and asking if anyone knew the pilot. And on January 18, 1990, he got a letter. This is what the letter said. Dear Charles, all these years I wondered what happened to the B-17. Did she make it or not? And he was so excited, this guy Charles Brown, Charlie Brown, nice name, he was so excited that he calls, he, he immediately picked up the phone and he called Franz Stigler. And then later, as he was reflecting on this, he wrote this letter. Listen to this. He said, to say thank you, thank you, thank you on behalf of my surviving crew members and their families appears totally inadequate. If you've experienced God's mercy, you know that feeling. And, and, and with... Um, with Stigler, somebody asked him at one point what he felt about, about uh, Charles Brown. And Stigler had lost his brother in the war. He had lost his friends. There were 28,000 pilots who fought for Germany, uh, who, who fl flew for Germany in the Air Force. Only 1,200 of 28,000 survived World War II. And, and that war cost him everything. He, he eventually left the country. 
And this is what he said. He says, I love Charles Brown. Charles Brown was the only good thing that came out of World War II for Franz Stigler. They went on fishing trips together. They're united. This mercy united these guys. They went on fishing trips together. They took road, road trips together. And Charles Brown's nightmares went away. At one point, they had a big re reunion celebration, and they played a video. And in the video, they showed all the faces of the people that now lived, children, grandchildren, relatives, because the men in that bomber were not shot down. Everybody in the room was weeping, but especially Franz Stigler. And then he wrote a letter to Charles Brown that reads like this. In 1940, I lost my only brother as a night fighter. On the 20th of December, four days before Christmas, I had the chance to save a B-17 from her destruction, a plane so badly damaged, it was a wonder that she was still flying. That pilot, Charlie Brown, is for me as precious as my brother was. Thanks, Charlie. Your brother, Franz. This is the way that our experience of God's mercy should mark us. Let's pray. Father, you have been so enormously good to us. And Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts that would be humble and contrite and tremble at your word. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to feel the weight of glory that you have bestowed upon us as creatures made in your image who can bear responsibility for our actions, for our choices, for our dispositions. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be those who love you. We pray that your mercy would continue to flow into our lives and that it would transform us. We pray, Lord, that this place would indeed be a place where the one new man in Christ lives. And Lord, we pray that the world outside would see the hope of the transforming power of the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for sinners. Lord, we love you, and we pray that you'd be glorified. We pray that you would do your work. We pray that you would cause your goodness to make us those who love one another as we should. In Christ's name, amen.